Let's uh, turn to 1 Timothy 6. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 6 for the next two weeks. So just give you a heads up, encouraging that way. Something that I've noticed, often kids give us a dis, uh, a different perspectives on items. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever asked a kid, a kid something? And they'll give you a unique perspective or perhaps the correct one. You know, us adults sometimes get, get things messed up. So here's some things I noticed. This is what a boy said. This is kids speaking on money, all right? This boy said, this is a definitive statement. Money comes from piggy banks. Boom, drop the mic. And then another girl added to that. She said, well, dad buys money from the money shop. She must have been at an ATM or a bank with dad, right? And then this conversation was heard. The mom said, what do you think I am, made of money? Now, I know none of you ladies have ever said that when your kids were growing. What do you think I am, made of money? And the child responded, yes. Isn't that what M-O-M stands for, made of money? And then the definitive response on money comes from Devin, age 10. Money is just paper and metal. And if you think of it that way, then is it something to get greedy over? I should know because it happened to me when I was a kid. I got greedy. Yeah. Anyway, sometimes they give us good perspective. We're going to be talking today about the need to be freed from greed. Say that three times fast. But uh, uh, something interesting that I've read in the past and I read again, and from a number of sources, and it's about John D. Rockefeller. Perhaps you've heard of him. At the peak of his wealth, John D. Rockefeller had a net worth, are you ready, of about 1% of the entire U.S. economy. In fact, he owned at that time 90% of all the oil and gas industry of, its, of his time. Could you imagine today if someone owned 90% of oil and gas today? And yet it is attributed to him from a number of sources. When asked how much was enough, he said, just one dollar more. Now before we condemn him, he, he had a lot, of, a lot of things that he gave to, but don't we occasionally live that way? Lord, life would be better if I just had one more dollar, or one more of this, or if I could get one more of that. As we consider generosity for the next three weeks, and by the way, if you're concerned, we're going to preach on this for three weeks. Better than last year, we did it for four weeks, all right? We're getting better. Maybe it'll be two weeks next year. I don't know. But as we consider this idea of generosity, today we're warned in Scripture about greed and coveting. And we're also provided, I believe, with the antidote for greed. The big idea is this today. Contentment, have you heard that word before? Contentment frees us from greed and covetousness. We're going to look at that today. So let's look at the first ten verses, 1 Timothy 6. And remember the context. Remember Paul writing... Remember young, what I've, I heard a preacher of old say, young preacher boy Timothy getting instruction. And here we go. <clears throat> Starting verse 1. All who are under the yoke as slaves must regard their own masters to be worthy of all respect so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. 
And those who have believing masters should not be disrespectful of them because they are brothers, but should serve them better, since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly love. Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is, look at this list, he's conceited, understanding nothing, but having a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, uh, slanders, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among men whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. Let me just stop right there. If you're involved in constant disagreements with people, constant disagreements with people, your mind might be a little bit depraved and deprived of the truth. Who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing or shelter, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and into destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray this morning that Scripture would come alive to us that it would not be my words, but it would be your words. It's your truth, not ours. God, help us to be people who obey and help us to be people that in the midst of our obedience act and influence and affect our world, our culture, our neighborhoods, our city. God, we pray that you would speak to us today in a profound way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And might I just say, I'm glad you guys' clocks work today. You're here. I really was wondering if people would be here today. Although these phones and stuff we have now automatically do that. But I realized, you know, you, you, you could have uh, slept in and just blamed it on the clock or something. I don't know. So we're glad that you, uh, you're here today. Isn't it good to worship the Lord together and to do life together? And then in our groups, our Sunday school classes, to have that community and prayer support and small group experience. It's wonderful, and I'm grateful for it. So the first two verses um, I've listed as greed affects our work. Now, Donnie was gone or has been on vacation, and as you know, we were kind of on vacation <laughs> slash quarantine, and so I prepared the outline ahead of time weeks ago, and I might have changed it a little, but I think you'll see it. I'm going to talk more about slavery here than just greed, but I want you to think about work in general. Think about where you have worked, if you're still working, maybe you're retired, but you're still serving in certain areas, maybe you have children who are working, grandchildren who are working, want, want to think about this. But greed affects all areas of life, including work. And as we get to verse 1 and 2, we see the word that's used here is doulos in the biblical language, and it doesn't mean servant, so if you're Translation says servant or, or bondservant. The, the best way to translate it is slave. 
Let's not sugarcoat it. That's what it is. So I think today we must spend a few moments discussing the question of slavery. I want to do this today. I didn't want to um, overtake the sermon with this, but as this sermon, the service is live streamed, as it's archived, I, I don't want people to think that slavery is okay or that the Bible says it's okay or this and that. So we're going to spend a few minutes on that. I want to share some background and context to these first two verses. If you've not noticed, world history is filled with various types of slavery. Maybe you're a student of history and you learn that. I'm going to share four main ones with you today. And I just want you to think about it real quickly. I just want to cover these bases if I could. Of course, we go back to the ancient Hebrews and we go back to what's called Hebrew servanthood. This was set up for impoverished Israelites to become servants. This type of servanthood was designed to provide the poorer Israelites and their families, to provide for them. Now, we need to make a couple comments here. In, according to Deuteronomy 15, God desires that none of his people are poor. That's what Deuteronomy 15 says. Yet God nevertheless makes provision for those in poverty. Since poverty is a reality, would you agree with that? I would. But listen to this, according to Leviticus 23. It's a reality because we live in a sinful and imperfect world. That's what it was not originally supposed to be, but that's where we are. And according to Hebrew servanthood, one could literally sell himself into slavery to escape poverty. You got it? Let's move on to number two. Roman slavery, which is where the context is here in 1 Timothy. Some scholars estimate that there were approximately, are you ready for this, 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Just let that settle in for a moment and think about that. Now, some slaves were simply employees who did a variety of different kinds of work. Okay, again, we get our word mixed up. What does that mean? In fact, many slaves in the empire owned slaves themselves. It's also important to recognize that Roman slavery, listen, hear me closely, Roman slavery was not fundamentally based upon ethnicity or skin color. Are you hearing me? But on economic and social status. To gain Roman citizenship and thus enter into Roman society, many people would sell themselves into slavery. In many cases, slavery was actually beneficial for poor individuals, providing security and stability for slaves in a variety of different venues. In spite of all that, I want you to know this. They were still slaves. And then we move to the third uh, section or third category, and that's indentured servitude. Perhaps you've heard of that. Back when in the colonial times and way back then, it's a form of slavery. It was more common in colonial America and other places as many people could not afford to come to the new country on their own. So what did they do? They would contract themselves out as indentured servants and agree to work in certain household in apprentice-type roles until they could earn enough money to pay off their debt. So this one is kind of a little bit closer to that first one, that Hebrew servanthood and then we get to the fourth one this one breaks my heart the African slave trade this last example of slavery was mainly promoted across the 18th and the 19th centuries in such a way that millions upon millions of Africans were traded and sold across Europe 
and ultimately across our country. These slaves were subjected to harsh working conditions as well as physical abuse, sexual abuse, torture, and unfortunately, this is what we primarily think of when we hear the word slave. And let me just stop for a minute and tell you what a black mark on the United States of America slavery is. As proud as we are to live in this country and have the freedoms we have, let us never forget this great black mark this stain upon America. And from pulpits of so-called Christian churches, men of God, quote-unquote, would get up and preach for it. Blows my mind. Grieves my heart. I pray that Hoppentown Church would become and be a church that there is no racism of any kind in it. And I acknowledge and understand some of you, grew, as my mother did, grew up in the deep south. And she had to work on overcoming that. But it can be done because it's a sin and it's wrong. You see why I, I didn't want to talk about this? We could go on and on. So that's the one that most of us think about. Yet this is not the kind of slavery that Paul addresses here. So I, I just want to be clear. I want us to understand that. And, and let's be even more clear when we talk about this. I'm going to give you three final statements about this, and we're done, okay? And then we'll move on. Number one, slavery is not a part of God's original created orders. Are you aware of that? What does the Scripture say? Well, slavery is not a part of the created order, the original one. It's, in fact, a sin. I've said that. Genesis 1 and 2, if you'll read it, speaks of the distinction between what? Between male and female, but there is no distinction between slaves and free persons. That's not how it was. Sin entered the world. Number two, let's think at the other end. In the new creation, Revelation 21 and 22, you see once again, there's no distinction listed there between slave and free in the new heaven and new earth. In fact, sin and slavery, we could say human trafficking today, could we not? That will be no more in the new heaven and earth. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? The sins are removed Tears are wiped away, all those kind of things. So we understand that. At the beginning, it wasn't there. In the new world, in the new heaven and earth, it won't be there. And then the third statement I take from 1 Corinthians 7.23. 1 Corinthians 7.23, it simply says this. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So the Bible not only condemns racism, but here we see Christians are forbidden to voluntary it voluntarily enter slavery. So you can go back and pick and choose and say how horrible that 18th and 19th century was, but maybe that Hebrew servanthood wasn't so bad or indentured servanthood. Listen, the Bible is clear. We're bought with a price. We should not have a master because why? We have a master, amen? We have a master, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Okay, I feel better. But I, I really want us to think about that. And if there's repentance that needs to be happened, allow God to do that in your life, would you please? All right, back to verses 1 and 2. In this context, thinking of the Roman Empire, 
and what's going on there. Paul makes clear that there were Christian slaves then. In fact, he describes them. Did you catch that in verse 1? They're under the yoke. Under the yoke. Yoke, the word zugon, means to be under bondage, to be weighed down ever so heavily. It's a harsh, hard bondage. Under the yoke gives us a picture of an animal that worked at the direction of a master. You can picture the oxen and things like that, or the horses or the donkeys. You can see all that, okay? So Paul is not, here, people take this out of context. Paul is not commenting here on slavery itself. Rather, he is instructing Timothy and thus Christian slaves about how they're to follow Christ in the circumstance in which they find themselves. And two situations are are listed here in verse 1 and verse 2. The first one is this. You find yourself under an unbelieving master or boss, we would say today. You are to do what? According to the scripture, respect, comply, obey, do what we would say today the employer says and requires. Do a job and do it well. And I think this is applicable to us today. You may say, well, I'm not involved in slavery. Well, maybe not. I've heard some of you gripe about work, though. Hello. If I was boss for a day, you know how I'd, right? But we're to do a job and to do it well as Christians. And even, according to verse 1, if we are serving under an unbelieving boss, of which many of you are, we should be thankful and appreciative to God for having work and work to do. Why? What does Scripture say right there? Here's the reason why. So that God's name and his teaching, what does Scripture say? Will not be damaged. So if we're not thankful, if we're not appreciative, if we're not doing a job and doing it the very best that we can do, we run the risk of damaging God's teaching, his word, his reputation, our witness, all those kind of things. John MacArthur said this, Christians have a divinely commanded responsibility to live out their faith in the workplace. Having a proper attitude of submission and respect and performing quality work are necessary prerequisites to proclaiming a believable gospel. And then verse 2, we have a different kind of boss or master. This is the Christian master, the Christian boss, and scripture is clear, don't be disrespectful. And here, if you'll read between the lines, what you'll see is don't assume you're going to get preferential treatment because the big man is a brother. Do you see that? That was going on in that day. Man, he keeps talking to the Ephesians. Man, they need help here, okay? But be careful. Don't do that. Don't assume it's going to be easy street. You still do your job and do it well. You serve well. And what did verse 2 say? Even better than others do. Wow. William Barclay, commentator of old, said this, Christian workers must commend their Christianity by being better at their work than other people. Okay, I'm not saying it's a contest or competition, but it should be obvious who the Christian doctor is, who the Christian teacher is, who the Christian electrician is. It should be obvious in how thankful they are, how appreciative they are, how they do their work better and better. You see, the chief motive for the Christian slave here 
was love, was honoring God, was obeying what he told them to do, not greed. And then now we jump into false teaching. Verses 3 through 5, we detect, we're detecting the faults, and it's a theme throughout the New Testament. But here Paul uses a connecting phrase. Did you see it right at the end of verse 2? Teach and encourage these things. I think it's a connecting phrase. I think it springboards from what he was talking about into, hey, here comes these things. Pay attention. We move from the two verses about the, for the Christian slave to this section now on false doctrine and greed, and they go hand in hand according to Scripture right here. So let's spend just a brief time on false doctrine and more time on the danger, danger of greed. Beginning in verse 3, Paul again, once again, addresses the false teachers in Ephesus. You'll see it over and over studying your word. And what I want to get is the word craving that is there. Did you see that? There's two, two um, destructive cravings that these false teachers, this false doctrine have. And the first craving is this, the craving for controversy. Did you catch it? For controversy. Look at that. They're teaching other doctrine. It doesn't agree with the sound teaching of Jesus. It doesn't promote godliness. And then just disputes and arguments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the second craving we see in verses 3 through 5 is the craving for money. So let's talk about those just for a minute. Controversy, first of all. The, the false teachers here teach other doctrine. I don't know how that can be any clearer. And it goes against what? Instead of the sound teaching of Jesus, what does Jesus' teaching promotes? It promotes godliness. Notice who they are. Look at verse 4 and part of verse 5. Here's who they are. Here's who these false teachers are. They're conceited. Does that make sense? You understand that? Okay. They're conceited. Understanding nothing. Wow. They have a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. Folks, this is seen over and over in Scripture. And again, I want to encourage you, it is not worth the disagreement to spend your whole life in disagreement with others. Your, your job as someone created in the image of God is not to be right on everything and prove everyone to be wrong. What you're to do and what I'm to do is share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and acknowledge that all are sinners, including me, and quit worrying about being right so much and instead love more and share more. I know that's hard to hear, but it's the truth. So be careful there because I don't want to have a sick interest in disputes or arguments over words. And then look what happens because of this. Envy, we know what that is. Quarreling, uh, slanders, evil suspicions, constant disagreement among men whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. So we have quite a list here. And what I would say in my, my best pastoral word, uh, my best shepherding, watch out. Watch out. Pay attention. Pay attention. Because there's this craving for controversy. And the second one listed is in the last half of verse 5. And it's the craving for money. Now, let's acknowledge something here today. I'm pretty sure if I took a poll of truthful believers, you know, that didn't have their church mask on and all that, I'm pretty sure we would get to 100% or very close to 100% that sometime in our lives, we craved a little bit of money. 
Would you acknowledge that? Would you acknowledge that? Would you look at that? No, I'm not going to ask you to look at the person next to you because if you're married to them, they're acknowledging it for you right now. Come on. My little red truck out there, I know some of you said, man, if I could just have that truck. Maybe not. It's a Ford, sorry. Or a house, or this fine meal, or this vacation, or for some people just even moving up to being able to pay for rent or whatever it might be. We're all in the boat together. And we see that last phrase, this craving that this false teachers have, and it's that they imagine godliness is a way to material gain. Anybody watch Christian television ever? I'm getting ready to make a few people a little uncomfortable. Why do you watch some of those guys on TV? I believe some of them are there strictly to have this godliness for their material and financial gain. There, I said it. They're not watching anyway. They're not going to know. But think about that for a minute. They'll quote a scripture, and then, or, or, or uh, this is what happened. Pick a psalm, and, and it was for this much, and say, you need to send me that many dollars. Well, good thing that he didn't say Psalm 150, or he'd want $150. Or one time, do you remember this in years past? This guy was saying, just send me your money and I'll send you this little, I call it a prayer towel. Like somehow it was mystical and blessed? Who does this? Christians? Hello? We think of pyramid schemes and we think of scams and on and on and on. And we're above that and yet you sit and watch those guys. They preach the word for two minutes, and the other 28 minutes, it's dealing with these photos or pictures or these pleas for money. Let me tell you something. If you have to spend all your time pleading for money to keep your ministry going, something is out of whack there. Okay? They imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. See, there's a connection to make here between what the false teachers were teaching and how they were living. Paul knew it, and he's encouraging young Timothy to be aware of this. They thought godliness was a means of material gain. It says it right there in Scripture. What does that mean? It means financial profit. They were using God, if you will, to get what they wanted financially. So let us heed the craving. It is a strong craving, you guys. Let us heed the craving to want more material possessions. I'm reminded of Jesus' words. Let me read them for you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. The words of Jesus. Greatest sermon ever. Here it is. Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where, you know it, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Also, is that, is that clear enough? Wow. Well, let's move on. Verses 6 through 8. He continues and jumps in more. And praise the Lord, after sharing these false teachings and these, these cravings, uh, Paul, in the inspiration and direction of, of the Lord, gives us the antidote for greed. And here it is. One word, contentment. 
That's the antidote for greed. To have, according to verse 6, to have godliness with contentment provides great benefits. I want you to think about that for a minute. This word contentment is an interesting word. Paul Christianized this word. Does that make sense to you when I say that? He took a word from the Stoics. Do you remember the Stoics? Not Christians. He took one of their words, contentment, and he Christianized it, and he used it, and here's what it refers to. I'm going to give you the definition. An attitude of mind independent of externals and dependent only on God. That's contentment. Can we get to the point where we forget all this stuff around us and we can depend only on God? Then contentment can come. Please note something. The Bible doesn't say, and this passage never says that wealth brings great gain. What does the Bible say? Godliness brings great gain. And it's clear here that a godly contentment should be a companion of godliness. And I'll confess to you, I've had trouble in my life from time to time with contentment. Any of you guys? It's something that's part of our sinful nature, and we have to work on it. And if we want to be more and more godly and be able to impact others, we've got to work on this. And I want, to, I want to read now from Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Now, we know Philippians 4, 13, right? It's often not said in context. Sorry. Let's look at 11 through 13 and pick up the context for what it is. It's dealing with contentment and circumstances. Look at it. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in what other circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's contentment. You see, whether you are in want or whether you are in prosperity, it's got to be contentment or greed can slip in. So my question is, okay, okay, God, this godliness with contentment is great gain? Why? Do you ever do that when you read the Bible? Well, why? And the Lord shows us right away. Why is this great gain? Look at verse 7 and 8. Let's look at verse 7 first. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. Now, I've heard that, uh, that phrase taken and kind of uh, changed a little. I did that with our boys before. I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of this world. Now, I know there's no father that's ever said that. Come on. That's not exactly what it says, is it? Is it? Okay. I'm feeling better. Some of you smiled for the first time this morning. It's a tough subject. I know it is. But that's what it says in verse 7. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. So here's, part of the, here's the answer to this great game. You see, after our brief stay on planet Earth... Guess what? The scripture is clear. We're going to depart this life as we came in. Are you aware of that? We're going to go out as we came in. So it's utter foolishness to be wrapped up in greed 
and concern for earthly possessions and things and things and things. We're going to go out like we came in. We're not going to get to take our house with us, our vehicle with us, uh, our, our bank account with us. We're not going to be able to do all that. And some of you, of course, are thinking about Job. Job 121. Listen to this. Very similar. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. But there's more to that verse. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, and he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. So that's one answer to the great gain. The second one we find in verse 8. Look at verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, or you could say shelter, we will be content with these. There's that word again. You see, whatever we possess of life's necessities, that's what it's talking about here. It's talking about food, clothing, shelter. It's not talking about this special trip or this certain kind of shirt or whatever it might be for you, okay? Whatever we possess of life's necessities, according to Scripture, we are to be content. Now, are you like me? Have you ever rummaged around, it's breakfast, and you're trying to get to church in a hurry, and you start whining because there's not this. Look, if you can find a morsel to eat, be content. Be content. I'm just sharing what happened to me this morning. I was looking for something to eat. <laughs> Do you want to know what I had this morning? It's going to gross you out. Cottage cheese with little pieces of sausage in it, and lots of pepper. Doesn't that just bless your heart? How many of you want to come over Sunday morning for breakfast? <laughs> Any cottage cheese lovers in the house? Oh my goodness, you are my people. Usually it's the other way around. Do you think Lynn ate cottage cheese with uh, sausage in it? No, she didn't. Okay. The point is this, whatever we have of life's necessity, food, clothing, thank the Lord that you have clothing or it would be really rough me being here looking at you guys with no clothing. I'm just telling you. And that we have shelter. Listen, we are to be content. What a stark contrast to this real temptation we face of greedily coveting more than we need versus being content with life's necessities. So I ask you one question today. How's your contentment level? Don't answer. I pray the Lord will allow you to deal with that question all week long. How is my contentment level? Let's move on to the final section, verses 9 and 10. The danger of covetousness. Now, I hate that word because it's hard to pronounce, but it is covetousness. You see, in verses 9 and 10, we're going to see something. First, in verse 9, there's one giant trap that can plunge us or the unsuspecting person into great spiritual ruin. It is the desire for wealth. I did not say wealth. I said the desire for wealth. And we call it covetousness. Let's see the three-part progression here in this verse. Number one, wealth tempts, wealth lures, and causes us to covet. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. These desires trap us. And that word used there in Scripture, it would trap us like an animal dangling from a net. Picture that, all right? You're hunting a lion, and it falls in the thing, and the net goes up, all right? 
That's the trap. And then the third part of the progression is we then drown in what I call foolishness. We drown in an ocean of destruction. That's the word that's used here. We see ruin and destruction. And then in closing, Paul uses a contemporary proverb that the wayward Ephesian elders validated by their behavior. Let's look at that proverb. You'll find that in material that's not in the Bible. And it's this. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Heard of that before? The readers knew about that because it was a contemporary proverb. And he shared it and wrote it down for us today, but for the readers of those days and for Timothy because these leaders, these Ephesian elders, these, they were validating that exact thing with what they were doing, what they were teaching, what they were saying. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The theological term for that in Hebrew is ouch. Ouch. That is a strong statement. Now notice something. I want you to catch this because, boy, you get all kinds of teaching here. Money is not condemned. Did you catch that? I have a, I have a belief. I want more and more Christians to be wealthy. Why? So they will be generous in sharing their wealth with the world. Amen? I think of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. I think of benevolence fund. I think of the special missions fund that we have. I think of things we're able to do to reach out to people. All Just so many things. And I'm grateful for that. But here, money's not condemned. It's the love of it that is condemned. Again, if I took a poll and everybody was with me, it probably should be about 100%. Sometime in our life, we love money. Have any of you sat there and counted it before? Come on, anybody? Anybody? I did that as we were preparing to return to the United States. I had a wad of U.S. dollars or whatever, so I was counting them. And see, I'm just confessing all the time. Why was I counting those? Lord, if you can just get me to Seattle, that's where we had to fly to. I can use this to buy bacon. Can't have bacon over there. Or I can use it. You see, you see where we're going. Now that, that's silly, but we've all done that before. Come on. Or what we've done is maybe not count it and then gone ahead and made a purchase we shouldn't have. But that's a whole other story. But what I want you to see here is that money's not condemned. It's the love of it. And it's not stated here. Here's another thing. It's not stated here that all evil comes from the love of money. But what we need to see is this greed, if you will, this love of money. It's misplaced love. And it causes all kinds of trouble and evil. Have you ever been in all kinds of trouble? Yeah. And then lastly, these Ephesian Christians, the ones who had sold out to greed, to this false doctrine, if you will, they were living proof of this example. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So I'm going to ask you another question. How's your coveting level? I hope you'll chew on that this week. Two things. I hope we will wrestle with the Lord over how we're doing with our contentment. What level is it at? And then how we're doing with coveting and what level is it at? 
And I pray that contentment will rise and coveting will go this way. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be a great hallmark of this family? As we reach out to others, I think it would be fantastic. So let me close. Greed, or someone say materialism, use whatever word you want to. It is a desire to possess things instead of a love to the God who made those things. Are you hearing me? It's this desire to possess things. Instead, be content and turn to the one, the creator of the universe, God, who made those things. And greed and materialism can be insidious. Have you noticed this? Be careful. Don't covet things that are not yours. Have you ever heard of that before? You ever heard of the Ten Commandments? What was number ten? Yeah, that was your chance, guys, to be a... For whatever section you're in, you could have been the star right then, all right? Thou shalt not, what is it? Covet. Now, let me get real for you a minute. Let me get real. Oh, I don't do that. Do you not? Don't covet things that are not yours. Don't listen. This is going to get some of you. Don't dream about get-rich-quick schemes. You're coveting something that's not yours. That somehow you just do this and you get this windfall. Don't do that. I'm not talking about good business practices or working hard. That's not all I'm talking about. And for me, it goes so far as this. Are you ready? I'm going to get kicked out of church. For me, coveting would be buying a lottery ticket. I refuse to buy a lottery ticket. Why? Because I'm going to get something. Have you ever seen who buys most of them? You ever been in the convenience store? People that don't have the money. They're trying to get rich. I do not want to receive all this money from a lottery. It's not my money. It's a horrible system. So you can make it personal in your life however you want to. That's how I have with my life. I'm sure I'm going to get questions now about the lottery. Bring it on. I'm ready. What I want us to see is that Paul shows us that greed is foolish. And it fails to make preparation for eternity. Have you thought about that? Greed or coveting will in no way help you to prepare for eternity. And according to Scripture, it leads to all kinds of evil, all kinds of trouble, great sorrow in this life. And I say, as Apostle Paul, if we could sit there, would be saying to young Timothy, take heed of this warning. Billy Graham said something interesting. Here's a direct quote from him. The Bible warns us against greed and selfishness. It does encourage frugality and thrift. Wow, that's pretty good. Let me close by saying, let us listen to the teacher. The book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher shares with us chapter 5, verse 10. Ecclesiastes 5.10. The one who loves money is never satisfied with money. That's in the Bible. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. Let's pray. God, we know money is a tough subject. Wealth is a tough subject. People think we're out to get their money. Or why should I 
give to this or that. And God, I just pray you would supersede all those thoughts today and we would consider the stark contrast between coveting and between being content. God, I just pray that that would be us, that we would see such freedom when that would happen. And God, I'm so grateful to those here and all around the world who give and give sacrificially and give out of what you've given us. God, may we be givers. May we help to get your gospel to every tribe and tongue on this planet. God, there's so much work to be done yet. God, may we impact those in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. May you make us generous. God, may you remove from us the love of money and replace it with contentment. God, may we be thankful and appreciative for work and for you providing us with the necessities of life. God, may we be freed from the need to be greedy. Thank you for your word and how it impacts all areas of life, including this area. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.